This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to Lama Surya Das's Awakening Now podcast. We are very pleased to share with you Lama's unique illumination of the awakened awareness teachings. If you are interested in supporting Lama Surya Das's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/suryadas. Today I want to talk about integrating into daily life, Dharma into daily life, action, conduct, activity, Buddha activity. In Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, we go for refuge until fully enlightened by the power of all six paramitas, from generosity to prajnaparamita, non-dual wisdom, for the sake of all beings who realize Buddhahood. So the first two lines is refuge, reliance, relying on Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha or enlightenment, liberating teachings and practice, and third, kindred spirits, the enlightening community. And we take refuge, we rely on them, not on other things, not on outer things, not on material things that are like dust that pass in the wind. And then the second couplet of this shloka, the second two lines of this four-line verse, the shloka, by the power of all the six perfections. Perfections is one of the translations that I really uh, don't like because it's so perfectionistic. Paramita means panacean practice, a practice that takes you all the way. Transformative practice, paramita. The first one is giving or dana paramita, generosity. The sixth one is prajna paramita, non-dual wisdom. Actually, in the original sutras, there are 10 paramitas. In Tibetan Buddhism, there's usually six. There's also 10 if you look in Gampopa's Jewel Ornament of Liberation, the classic of the Kagyu school, 10 bhumis, one paramita for each bhumi on the way to full Buddhahood, 11th stage, 11th bhumi. So the action or the conduct of the great perfection is the six and the 10 paramitas. Paramitas, Trampanacean practices is my translation. Transformative practices, six perfections, most people will say. But don't give in to perfectionism. Remember the middle way. So when I wrote my book on the ten paramitas, called Buddha is as Buddha does, thinking of Forrest Gump as an inspiration, Buddha is as Buddha does, the ten transformative practices, original practices of enlightenment, One of my friends said, nobody can ever, you know, Americans are never going to remember this word paramitas. Uh, He was a a doctor, actually, psychiatrist. He said, why don't you call them the 10 paramecium? (laughs) (laughs) Everybody knows that. (laughs) So I thought about that a long time, paramecium, paramitas, and then I realized what these really are, panacean practices, not just giving a little to panhandler, not just giving a lot to have a wing built on the hospital or school with your name on it, you know, giving to receive, giving with strings attached, but it's a panacean practice of total non-attaching, giving without expectation of return, as is the main teaching and principle of the Bhagavad Gita. Do what you have to do, Arjuna. 
and leave the rest to me, God, as Lord Krishna says. So, from the view of seeing it as it is, the glimpse, the recognition, your deepest, most complete natural state or experience, comes the meditation of getting used to it, of abiding by the view, of resting in the view, of allowing, of maturing. The wine is in the bottle, but it gets better year by year. It matures, not by stirring and shaking it or adding or subtracting to it. So it's like that, seeing it as it is, the view, and then the meditation or the practice, leaving it as it is, getting used to it, checking it out, seeing if there's anything better or deeper. And third, responding as is, according, according to as it is, whatever is needed or called for, not compulsively projecting your own conditioning again and again. As somebody said, to a hammer, everybody, everything's a nail. To a missionary, everybody is a potential convert. To a thief, you know, what do they say? When a thief sees a saint, all they see is the saint's pockets. That's partial view. Kind of like straw or tunnel vision. So, based on this, the action of the great perfection, bring it into daily life through first, dana paramita, generosity and non-attachment. Second, shila paramita, ethical self-discipline, character development, being a mensch, compassion, and so forth. Living the bodhisattva life, living according to the bodhisattva code, the paramitas, the bodhisattva code, the six or ten paramitas. Any of which, any of which is param, is panacean. Externally, dana paramita means giving money, material support, food, shelter. But internally, it means being generous with our emotions. It means letting go. It means non-attachment. It means lending an ear, giving of yourself, caritas, Christian charity, caritas, dana paramita, caritas giving without expectation of return, caritas, self-giving, being there for others, and so on. Giving protection, giving succor, giving solace, being there for others is internally. Externally is behavioral, internally is attitude. And then subtly or secretly, being in touch with the infinite abundance, not needing anything, contentment, the ultimate form of wealth, the greatest gift, all you need, contentment. So we could, and my book has a chapter on each of these, these 10 paramitas about the outer, inner, and seeker or subtlest level of how we practice them. Ethics, external is behavior, inter like not killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, intoxicants, and, uh, and the fifth one. And that's behavioral, external, but internally being straight with yourself, not deceiving yourself. To thine own self be true, and so on. Being authentic, not faking it. Internally, being straightforward and genuine, candid, honest. So externally behavior, internally attitude, and then secretly being in touch with innate purity, the uncorruptible in the light or Buddha nature, independent of actions. So this is the action of the bodhisattvas, the bodhisattva code, the ten paramitas. Some of them are more tricky than others. That's why the Tibetans concentrate on the first six. The seventh, skillful means or methods. Tibetan Buddhism is called the path of many skillful means, many tantras and yantras and mudras and practices and yogas and things white magic, shamanistic practices, tantra, all kinds of things. Eighth, siddhi, siddhi, power, powers, empowerment, healing powers, magic powers, charisma, etc., effectiveness, leadership powers. 
eighth. Ninth, munlam, sometimes translated as prayer, munlam, vow, munlam, aspiration, path. Resolve, that's a good one. My own teacher, Nyoshu Kempo Rinpoche, co-founder of the Zogchen Center, he used to say, without resolve, without intention, without uh, diligence, you can't really accomplish anything, neither in the spiritual world nor the material world. Munlam also means prayer. Oh, it's like, see there, it's written in Sanskrit, pranidhana, in Tibetan, it's munlam. And tenth, jnana or yeshe. Yeshe is not here anymore, unfortunately, but we still remember her, the feminine wisdom, which is hard to describe. How is ten different than six, I ask you? That's why we try a word like authenticity for yeshe, primordial awareness. Sixth, wisdom, prajna, paramita, is developed like the full moon that gets bigger, is cultivated and developed. Yeshe, the tenth, is recognized. It's primordial. It's like the inner light. We don't really develop that. We might transparentize the obscurations covering it. We might learn to shine it or focus it more. But recognizing it, see, it's a little deeper, it's a little different. Yeshe, primordial presence awareness to anthropomorphize it awareness authenticity you can read about this in my book it's hard to understand but it's not really that um, obscure so once when i lived in darjeeling in the 70s at kala rinpoche's monastery and the Tukupema Wangel's father, Kanjur Rinpoche's monastery with Matthew Ricard and other people you might know today who were teachers or great translators and lamas and so on. Dingo Kinsey Rinpoche was there and Yosho Kempo was there. Lama Sonam Tubgel of Toronto, down Toronto was there. I asked him what was the difference between the Jewish and Christian, you know, humanistic virtues like caritas and generosity and giving. And they said, in the paramita, there's no giver and no one to give it to. It's just the sharing or the mutual reciprocity. I thought that was pretty profound. I've been thinking about that for 40 years. Like in the second, in ethics and self-discipline or morality, this would say there's no pure and impure. That's relative thinking. There's no one who's pure, nothing that's impure. You know, think about this now. In the caste system, Brahmin-oriented world of India 2,600 years ago or now, no pure and impure. What? You mean pork isn't impure? Untouchables aren't impure? Women aren't impure? Even in modern play, uh, countries today, women having their periods aren't impure. Women having babies aren't impure. Anybody familiar with these customs? No pure and impure. Quiet. Holy shit. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> in the Indian tradition. <laughs> Number three, patient forbearance. This is the, what the Dalai Lama calls it. Most people call number three patience, which generally we have the idea of like keeping a stiff upper lip. You know, my British friends have this idea. Or when you're waiting online, you know, how long is this going to take? You know, why is the cashier such a doofus? Don't they know how to work? Why isn't the person in front of them giving them, you know, 9,000 pennies to pay for the movie ticket? Uh. But patient forbearance is like acceptance, tolerance. That's awesome. That's why that radical acceptance recruitment is a panacea in practice. It can take you all the way. In Zogchen, we call it one taste. 
not distinguishing like what you like and dislike and not reacting based on attraction and aversion would be more precise. And fourth, joyous effort, virya, heroic, enthusiastic effort, but not always the effort of the mountain climber. Sometimes, you know, rowing hard and sometimes just, uh, what's the word, coasting the middle way, effortless effort like we cultivate in our attraction practice like lying in the grass, sky gazing, or just sitting in a comfortable, upright, pyramid-like, mountain-like posture and relaxing with formal outer and informal, let it all hang in, inner activity. The non-doing of the great perfection, not inaction. That's why Pacho Rinpoche, R. Kempo's, Grand Guru, the Guru of his Guru's Guru, the great Pachal Rinpoche. Pachal Rinpoche, the enlightened master, what, what did they call him? The enlightened vagabond of Tibet, who signed his many poems and writings, Old Dog, or Toothless Old Dog, or Wandering Old Dog. The great Pachal Rinpoche, who vowed never to sleep indoors. That's quite a vow in Tibet. Who never accepted a monastery to be built around him. Who left an ingot of silver, the shape of a horse's hoof, as he called it, the size of a horse's hoof, an ingot of silver that the, one of the local kings gave to him in return for Dharma teachings. He left it in the fireplace of his campsite. He had used it as one of the three stones to put his teapot on the night before. And then when he left, he took the teapot, which he needed, and left the three stones, which he didn't need. One of them was the ingot of silver. He didn't forget it. And others, you know, found that, and they said, wow, he forgot his ingot, you know, his offering. And the people who knew him said, no, he just got as much use out of it as he needed. And remember, and then the other third one says, you know, this is the story. And then the third one says, don't you remember Pacha Rinpoche said, one brick of tea is one brick of overweight baggage at the airport? Loose translation. <laughs> one brick of tea is one more you know, brick to carry. That's what Pacha Rinpoche said, because he never rode horses as they did in Tibet. He didn't like making them into beasts of burden, him being the burden. He didn't want to burden the beings like a horse by riding it. So he said, one brick of tea, you know, this is the old world. They didn't have Lipton tea bags and celestial seasoning tea bags. They came in bricks, black Chinese tea usually. One brick of tea was just one more brick, not a bad metaphor, to carry. Bricks are heavy, right? Who needs that? So Pacho Rinpoche sang, which is the point I'm getting to. Beyond action and inaction, the sublime dharma is accomplished. I'm going to spell it out in the air. Beyond action and beyond inaction. One word. Beyond action and beyond inaction, the sublime dharma is accomplished. Beyond action and beyond inaction, the sublime dharma is accomplished. That's an awesome saying. How does that fit with like virya paramita effort sometimes translated as diligence. The veer in virya actually means heroic, so it means like heroic, courageous effort, like to get enlightened, not just to have bigger muscles by, you know, enthusiastically weightlifting. So that's one of the main principles of Dzogchen, this undoing the habit of overdoing. Beyond action and beyond inaction, the sublime dharma is accomplished. That kind of stops your mind, doesn't it? It's like, whoa, then what? What do I do? What do I do? Well, that's the question we've been addressing. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to get there. We don't chant obstacle-removing prayers. There's no obstacles and no one being obstructed in this pathless path. You know, the main, one of the main, probably main Zen classics in Chinese and Japanese Buddhism, Buddhism is the gateless gate. What does that refer to? 
from outside, when you're trying to get in, it seems like there's a wall and a gate that you need to find and go through. But from inside, there's no wall and there's no gate. It's a sacred space where the inside is bigger than outside. The gateless gate. It's a collection of koans that break down your dualistic thinking in that way. Rumi said it, the Sufi poet, the most best-selling poet in America, even though he lived 500 years ago and wrote in, uh, I don't know, Farsi or Urdu or something, Arabic, and lived in Konya, Turkey. It was probably part of Persia then. Rumi said, and I recommend you to read Rumi, especially translations by Coleman Bark. Rumi, R-U-M-I, he said, for years I've been knocking on the door to heaven, only to realize all I've been knocking from inside all along. I love that. And you know, I never memorize these things. I read them, I read them again. Sometimes I bend the page. Sometimes they stay with you. They come when you need them or, you know, you, you think things like that and can help you on your spiritual journey to, contem to contemplate these words of wisdom of the masters. You know, the ones that resonate with you. You don't have to memorize the entire five books of the Old Testament, maybe just the Ecclesiastes, the wisdom part. And you don't have to memorize the whole of Ecclesiastes. Maybe just a couple of sentences will do. When I was first in Darjeeling, I knew this old Lama with glasses and, you know, of course, poor man's refugee, thick glasses. It was like bottle caps with wooden, um, I don't know what, you know, little boxes around them on his head with a rubber band in the back. It was probably better than no glasses, which he had walked out of Tibet with. It, during the Chinese invasion in 1959. Lama Tupton, I knew him in 1971, two, three, when I was there, four. I said to him once, Lama, how did you, how did you walk, you know, how did you get here all the way from Tibet through the snow mountains with the Chinese army chasing you all and so on, you know, without a North Face sleeping bag, a compass, a gas a Bunsen burner to cook your, you know, food at night and things like that. And he said, one step at a time, Surya, one step at a time. That's how we integrate the Dharma into daily life. This moment, only moment, as if. This breath, only breath. Let me define mindfulness in a different way. Mindfulness, like Zen, is doing what you're doing while you're doing it. Who can do that and not be multitasking, distracted, driving, and your mind is where you think you're getting to, not where you are? Charles Genoux, who used to teach with me, Charles Genoux of Switzerland, used to say something about um, when you're driving, try to feel your ass in the seat. That would be like a great, you know, radical progress. When we're driving, who remembers that they're, you know, feeling that or feeling the steering wheel or gripping the steering wheel too tight or pushing on the brake and the gas, you know, the way some bad drivers do with two feet? One of my teenage friends said, her father told her, I have one main rule for you, Francis. And Franny said, what's that? And in her mind, she thought, oh, no. What's this going to be? No dating till I go to college? Or um, you can't take the car after dark? Well, who knows what? You know, all this flashed through her head. She was a smart teenage girl. And it went quick. And her father said, when you're driving my car, please keep your mind in the car. <laughs> I thought that was a fantastic early mindfulness teaching from dad in the 1960s. Try to stay in the car, dear, when you're driving the car. But who does? Who can just be doing what they're doing when they're doing it? 
you know, the Zen of gardening. Zen in the art of archery. It's a classic Zen book. It's about doing archery where the form is everything. There's not even a target to hit. That's Zen archery. Breathing and stance and presence. I know you think I'm telling a good story. I hope you think I'm telling a good story. This is based on the scripture. Now I give you the scriptural precedence. Because I don't like to say Buddha said Buddha in every sentence. Somebody once asked Lord Buddha, this is in the sutras, the scriptures, the history, you can read it. Why do we call you, your monks and nuns venerable? What's so special about them? Why should we feed them lunch every day? You know, they ate one meal a day and some of them were all and begged. They went around and begged for something and then they all sat down and ate it, whatever they got in their bowls. Why should we feed them? Why should we invite them? Why should we support you alls? What's special about them? And Buddha said, well, maybe they don't look so special. Of course, we're all the same, endowed with the luminous Buddha nature. Anybody can become a Buddha. Anybody could, you know, practice this path. But there is one way in which they're very venerable and special. And the people are like, oh, you know, what's that? Ooh. We must have overlooked something. Buddha's saying it. We must have overlooked something. What is it? Buddha? Buddha? Boo? What is it, boo? Of course, they called him like, you know, whatever. Lord Buddha. What is it, Venerable Lord, that makes him so special? Buddha said, my monks and nuns, when they stand up, they know they're standing up. When they sit down, they know they're sitting down. That's all he said. That saying has lasted 2,600 years. That's the Zen of Theravadan Buddhism. Do what you're doing while you're doing it. Do it fully and know you're doing it. Mindful. Remindfulness. Remembering to remember what you're doing while you're doing it. Think about it. If you forget to remember that you're driving while you're driving, what happens? You might have an accident. But it's not really an accident, it's caused by heedlessness, mindlessness. The same with, you know, sawing and cutting your fingers off or hitting your thumb with a hammer and all the other accidents that we have, closing the door on our finger or stubbing our toe and other accidents, big and small, finding ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time by not paying attention, etc. So integrating in daily life Mindfulness, heedfulness, paying attention, moment to moment, remembering to do what we're doing while we're doing is so important. One step at a time, this step only step. As Buddha said, that's very special. My monks and nuns are venerable because when they stand up, they know they're standing up. When they sit down, they know they're sitting down. By extension, all the other things. They're aware, self-aware if you like, not narcissistic, but self-aware one step at a time. Thus the Chinese saying, the road of a thousand miles begins right beneath one's feet. Jack Hornfield likes to tell a story about integrating Dharma with daily life. He said one of his students had a corner house in the suburbs and every year he and his kids were out there trying to pick the dandelions out of the lawn you know, so their lawn could look green like grass, like everybody else. Because as you know, one of the main preoccupations in the suburbs is being like everybody else, you know, and not having an overgrown, horrible house. Or, you know, try having a nice Zen rock garden instead of the grass and see what everybody in the neighborhood thinks, etc. You know, peer pressure doesn't just end after junior high school, as you know. Even here. You have to get the right yoga clothes. Well, not here, but in yoga class. Here you have to have the right shmata to wrap yourself and meditate in. So Jack's person said, and every year we'd be picking out the dandelions and the kids would just pick off the heads and I'd keep telling them, no, use the tool so you get the roots because if you get the roots out, it can't grow. There won't be any dandelion there next year in the grassy lawn. 
And of course, it's hard to, harder to do that. So being kids, you know, like me when I was doing the lawn in our house in Long Island, always trying to find the shortcut so I could get done and go and play ball with my friends. Jack's um, friend finally gave up and instead of trying to change his lawn into a perfectly green putting green like some of the other houses nearby who probably had gardeners or they had gardening cities or something or sprayed a lot of DDT on their, you know, weeds. Jack's friend decided, oh, we have a dandelion farm. We could have dandelion tea. We could have dandelion salad. So that's the tantric way to integrate Dharma into daily life. Everything is grist for the mill of Dharma not the sacred and the profane, and try to get rid of the profane. Not the pure and the impure. That's the narrow path. Mahayana is a great highway, has many lanes. The great vehicle, all-inclusive, all beings, always. Let's just try to stay out of the ditches on either side of nihilism and materialism. Nothing matters, nihilism. Materialism. Everything is what it seems to be, and only what we can see and measure and weigh counts, materialism. Now, if we talk about view, meditation, and action, we should also, in Dzogchen, we should also talk about, like, the bonus round. I have a yoga teacher, I won't tell you his name, Ben, and he, he does yoga with me every morning here, but, you know, we want to protect the guilty. And after he makes me do way too much because he's half my age, less. And then he's, when I think we're done, then he says, oh, bonus round. <laughs> Where's Ben? There he is, hiding on the shmata. <laughs> so view meditation, action, and result, or bokden, enhancement, integration, stepping up to the next level, making an exponential leap beyond self-improvement projects, beyond self-help, beyond what about me, beyond worrying about my progress, or pie in the sky, enlightenment, rain, you know, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. There is no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Rainbow is a circle if you see it from above. And the rainbow is the valuable thing. There need be no pot of gold at the end. Rainbow is peace. Rainbow is end of storm in the biblical metaphor. Rainbow colors, you know, rainbow community is beautiful. Not Midas touch. Whatever you touch turns to like a solid gold statue. Who needs that? So, Bokden, enhancement, taking everything as the path. Not resenting your kids because they keep you from going on three-year retreats or, you know, three-month retreats. Not resenting your work or your boss because you don't like them. Guess who chose them, who fought to get that job? The job that, you know, keeps the roof over the family head and food on, and vegan food on the plate. Bokden is a great subject. We go into that more in advanced teachings seeing like the substratum of everything beyond Tregchud, Togel, leap over, being there. So not just emptiness, but like luminosity, rainbow light, that this world is the rainbow. This body is the rainbow body. This world is the true land. Oh, I do want to mention, if you're new, some of you are new or new to Zogchen, I advise making it a daily practice, like every morning or night or both, depending on you if you're a night owl or a morning person, but a daily-ish practice. And then, you know, maybe some weekly type practice, like going to a meditation group or a house of worship or whatever. That's why people get together once a week in every religion and other kinds of communities, support groups, whatever. So no one can do this alone. It's very hard to do it alone. Even the Buddha had teachers. We know the names of the two main teachers, he, he said. Community. And third, 
going to some weekend workshops or short retreats to charge up your battery, to go deeper. And fourth, taking a spiritual sabbatical every once in a while, like every five years or three years, takes six months off, or every 10 years, takes three months, six months, a year off, and maybe make a pilgrimage, do some retreat, check out some teachers, do something different, turn over the garden to really go deeper, because this is a deep thing. Not just trying to reduce your blood pressure, but to really get total health, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, energetic health and longevity, vitality, and healthy community and healthy world. Tikkun, restoring the world, as they say in Hebrew. So for that, some of us, you know, like I did three-year retreats, and people do things like that, crazy as it seems. Professors take off one year every seven years to improve themselves or, you know, study their main subject and write about it or something. And refresh, you know, turn over the garden so they can keep enthusiastic, healthy, and interested over a 30- or 40-year career. So the last thing I want to mention for in daily life is what I call the six building blocks of a spiritual life. And first I mentioned already daily practice, daily-ish practice, formal practice, having a session. I'm not going to specify what kind of session or how long. It could be yoga or prayer. Let's say we're talking about meditation. Could be chanting and meditation or whatever. Daily spiritual practice, formal spiritual practice session or two. Second, some kind of spiritual study, even if you're not a book person or a book lover, even if you have double vision and lex dyslexia. You can open the book of nature. You can study yourself, introspect. You can study your relationships. You can look into how things work, cause and effect. Third, personal growth work. I remember I used to uh, slip and say gro per, uh, inner grope work. Can't say that anymore. Can't do that anymore at Esalen. Inner growth work, therapy, support groups, men's women's groups, journaling, whatever your art form may be, some kind of inquiry, self-inquiry work, not just sitting in a pew dreaming about the shopping channel. That's not being in church. That's just shopping. So the first triad are alone-ish, though they can be done with others, alone-ish. And the second triad of the six building blocks are group practice, to round off your rough edges. Somebody told me the other day there's a saying, if you shake a sack of potatoes, all the dirt and the rough edges fall off. That's not the Tibetan saying. The Tibetan saying is a little more old world. You'll appreciate this. If you have a big burlap sack of yak horns, I'm sure you're all very familiar with yak horns. And sharp. And if you shake the sack enough, they all the, the points and the rough edges get all rounded off. Or coins is a European saying. Shake that sack of coins together enough, like a group, a team, and the coins get rounded off and stop rubbing against each other in such abrasive ways. So group practice is fantastic and also helps you even out your liking and disliking. You learn to love even those you might not like or have an affinity for. And fifth, teacher practice, which is not teaching. Teaching is a great way to learn, but working with elders, teachers, mentors, instructors, etc., experienced ones. And sixth, giving back some form of service, karma yoga, seva, seva, serving God by serving people, seva, serving the highest by serving the lowest, seva, service, compassion in action, volunteering, etc. Or even just being a more unselfish parent, worker, colleague, member of the community and all, you know, environmentalist. Not just thinking about what about me, what about us, you know, me first. The Mahayana version is America first, but that's still pretty partisan and separatist. So these, uh, if you notice, there's really nothing Buddhist here. This is what I would call an American mundra, the foundation of a spiritual life. 
don't be overwhelmed if you're new. You don't have to do all six of them at once. If you do even one of them, that's good, or two at different times in your life. It might be easy to do a loan practice when you're a student, when you're single, or when you're old. There, sometimes you have many kids and responsibilities and neighbors and things going on. So, you know, you're taking care of your sick in-laws or elders. So it's a good time for group practice and so on. Seva. Any questions, please? You know, daily life is where the rubber really meets the road on the spiritual path. You know, this is like a greenhouse. It's easy to meditate and be peaceful. I know you don't think it right now because you've gotten used to it, but when you go out, you'll remember back to here. So go out slowly. Don't be shocked. Don't jump right into the left lane on the New York Thruway. Start going 90 while you're trying to meditate. Whoa, that truck never seems to end. It just went by at 100. I didn't even see it. We haven't lost any people yet. We did have one uh, bunch. I'm looking around to see if any of the guilties are here who took our, our rented truck with all of our, you know, the stuff we bring back to Cambridge. And they were going to stay overnight. And it was, we used to have our summer retreat in Lake Canandaigua, New York, on top of the hill at the Notre Dame Retreat Center, looking out over the Great Lake of Canandaigua. So we got all of our tankas and statues and, you know, projectors and stuff and had it in a small, uh, whatever you call it, U-Haul rented truck. And somebody was driving. So, of course, he being, you know, whatever, 30, I don't want to be an ageist, brought along one or two of his friends, now his wife, and another friend. And, you know, when it came time to stop at the motel on the way, they drove it down into the underground parking and just sheared off the whole top right over. Luckily, it just took off the top and not the top of their heads. <laughs> they didn't remember to remember they were driving a truck instead of their usual, you know, Honda or there were no Priuses then. <laughs> I mean, thank God nobody got hurt, but, you know. Anyway. Oh, there's another one who was... Uh, who left, you know, at the end, our vegetarian one-month retreat at Canandaigua, which is near Rochester, let's say, Finger Lakes, if you're not familiar, between Ithaca, Cornell, and Rochester, New York, over there past Syracuse West, and jumped on the New York Thruway and was driving like 80, you know, towards Albany and towards New York or Boston. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Of course, we have vegetarian retreats, uh, I think, generally, always. And he was eating a giant hoagie that he had got at the first opportunity, you know, like with six meats on it and, you know, 12 onions, pickles, olives, you know, mayonnaise and mustard falling off the sides. And you practically had to hold it with two hands. <laughs> I wasn't there. But according to him, he was driving very fast, of course, in the left lane, you know, speeding and eating this hoagie with one hand and steering with the other, you know, and he had the window open. I don't know why. It must have been the summer. Maybe his air conditioner didn't work on his jalopy. And he had to keep grabbing it because, you know, it was overflowing. <laughs> and he had, he had a little fender bender. <laughs> he didn't lose the, as he said, but I didn't lose the hoagie. <laughs> you know, it's a submarine sandwiches sandwich if you're a foreigner, a hoagie. So that's not recommendable. <laughs> Questions, please. So I, ha so I have a um, question about group practice. Group practice. Right. So I live in Concord, Mass. The Universalist Church, home of Emerson, uh, has two Buddhist meditation sessions a week. Pretty sure it's not jo Zojin. Um, does it matter? Does it? Not to me. Okay. Then I'm good with it. You check good. it out. Does it matter to you? No, it doesn't. Are they really. going to look into your mind and see what you're doing? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll keep that in mind. Thank you. I don't know. You have to be careful, though. If there is Zen group, you know, they might hit you with a stick if you move. <laughs> so there's always that. If you know, uh, anyway, 
You know what I mean? <laughs> no, it's good to go, you know, the United Nations of Dharma. And whether it fits for you or not, that's all. And it's good to met, practice with other people, right? To chant with other people, to pray with other people, to sing and dance with other people, to meditate with other people. But you can also do it alone. You can also do it out in nature. You can go out to Thoreau's cabin on Walden Pond and meditate there with everybody else that's there, all the tourists. But if you go at the right time, you know, there's nobody there but Thoreau in spirit. And me at the beach part swimming. <laughs> Concord's a very spiritual place. I think those were the first American Buddhists, those guys. And a few of girls. They translated the Lotus Sutra into English for the first time. They talked about the Hindus in their writing with two O's. And the Hindu classics. They, you know, they had like, especially Thoreau, some of Buddhist values of simplicity and nature and passive resistance like Gandhi and so on. Thoreau said, I'd rather sit on a pumpkin than a throne. And he lived that way for a while. Any of you young people ever read Walden? Do they still read Walden in high school? Young people? It's a great classic. I've read it several times. Although I admit the first page may not be that interesting where he gives you an inventory about how many nails he used on his cabin and how much they each cost in, you know, 1840 or whatever. <laughs> Questions, please. Vicki. Hello. Hello. Every time we get to this point of the retreat, I actually think about you coming home from three years, three months, three days, three hours, however long it was. And three lifetimes. Yeah. Were, and were you there successively or did you come home in between? Um, I was there successively, but we had a six-month break in between okay. to build another retreat center for new students that wanted to do it. New meaning experienced people, but who had never done a three-year retreat. So, But I came back to New York right. to visit my parents for a few weeks. So... As I think about us, you know, you know, sort of after the retreat, going back and on the highway, what was that like for you? If you want to share. Yeah, I'm glad to share. I'm just trying to, you know, I don't know, remember even. Mm. It was fine. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'll tell you, it was harder after being in India and Asia most of the time from 1971 to 77 to come back to the West and the modern world and I couldn't find the thing that opens the do door of the car because there were no more handles. Yeah. The vandals took the handles and I couldn't <laughs> find the, the, you know, the buttons or the indented, whatever it was. And I had never seen a video store and um, I couldn't believe that there was, like, a bus schedule. And, like, if I went to somewhere at that time, the, there'd be a bus there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or a train. <laughs> really? Are you sure? Don't have to wait for I, I don't really want to go there at 630 in the morning, you know, if the bus ain't there. <laughs> on Stand on the winter corner. And somehow, you know, after a while, after a few months or years, you get used to it. Yeah. That was more of a culture shock coming back from right. India. Then the three-year retreat. But, of course, the three-year retreat was very cloistered. So mm -hmm. some of my more sensitive friends in our group, the first time they came out and smelled the car going by, they threw up from the gas fumes. Or well, first time they rode in the car, they threw up. But you didn't throw up? No, I am about as sensitive as a snow tire. <laughs> <laughs> Studded snow tire, you know. Or a Capricorn, you know, I'm a Capricorn, a mountain goat, just like climbing and eating the cans on the way. <laughs> Did you have a hoagie in the car <laughs> with no windows? <laughs> just kidding. 
<laughs> I came back from India with Christian Das once on the same plane. And my father picked us up at Kennedy because our Miller house in Valley Stream was closer to Kennedy International than his Kegel house in Roslyn further out on Long Island. So then I was going to like, you know, just this was an idea we had in India. So it's almost happened this way. And then I thought I'd just, you know, eventually like he'd stay over or not, and drive him to Roslyn like later or the next day, my parents' car or something. <laughs> Is that when he gave you his jacket? Anyway, I'll talk. I don't know. A lot of stories. So anyway, we came you. off the plane and I don't know anybody come in these international terminals like a JFK. You know, it was before 9-11, but still there was a certain amount of security and you couldn't meet people at the gate like you used to. And then there's customs and there's the line and the dog sniffing. And then there's like a big row of opaque door windows like that, you know, sliding and it opens and you see all these people, multicolored, hundreds of people behind like a metal, you know, fence, like just really banister. So Krishna Das and I are coming off and we're in our pajama pants, like we're well, like Harry Krishna, you know, and Krishna Das is trying to carry his harmonium so it doesn't break <laughs> in the plane, not put it underneath where it would definitely break, you know, and they throw the suitcases out on right. the harmonium and whatever else is under there, the dog. So you, you don't want your dog under there either, I'll tell you, in the plane. And they die. And um, yeah. so we come out and we come through customs and the dogs sniff our suitcase and we look at each other like, ha, ha, ha. Like, we're that stupid, you know? Ha, ha. Not anymore. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we come through and the doors open. And there's hundreds of people and it's New York, which is so cacophonous and so rainbow colored. And so many, you know, like a hundred languages of people excitedly, family and friends chattering, right? and calling names and, you know, like to get your attention. So me, Christian Das, and, you know, maybe one or two other people we didn't know came through, like four of us together. <laughs> and Christian uh, Das and I are together. We're like, you know, the Doobie Brothers or something, <laughs> the Blues Brothers, I don't know what. We're together. And so, of course, my mother and father, they're like the Blues Brothers in their world. They're together, as they always were, and they come pick me up, and they're waiting. I hadn't been back to America in a couple of years. And I hear above the cacophony, this relates to culture shock and how it's so hard to come back to India, from India to America. I hear my mother's voice. Harold, look at Jeffrey. He's so skinny. <laughs> <laughs> above the hundreds of languages of chattering and yelling names, you know, like Patel, Abdul, you know, Bob. <laughs> it's my mother. Hey, he's so skinny. Ah! Harold was my father's name. She just spontaneously erupted, you know? Not even to me. Jeffrey! It was like, Harold, look at him! <laughs> Don't they feed him over there? <laughs> and we were so happy, you know? We were so full. Maybe skinny, but full, you know? <laughs> it was a big shock. I shouldn't tell this. My tell mother, it. May she rest in peace. But so it was, I think, the summer. It was like July or something of 1972, I think. And um, so my parents took us and we sat in the back of the fat-ass, whatever, eight-cylinder bagasse guzzler or whatever, DeSoto <laughs> or Chrysler. And they drove us to, you know, our house. And my mother was so rattled. Of course, I had a bandage on my ear because I had an earache and my sandals were, you know, like, like flopping. The soles were flopping off. And I don't know. In my mind, I'm carrying like a hobo pack on a stick. <laughs> I probably had a pack of some kind, not a suitcase, but like a hobo stick, you know, with, with a, a, a bag on it with, you know, my whatever in it, the other change of pajama clothes. And... Uh, we go to my house, you know, former house where I grew up, and my brother and sister are there. My mother is so rattled, like, she's just, like, happy, excited, just, like, can't believe it out of her mind. My father's more like the rock, you know, but he was a little, like, interested. <laughs> he was happy, too, but, you know, 
he wasn't happy about the band. You know, he saw the flapping sole and the hobo backpack, you know. Anyway, I was still only about 22. Like, so I went to India when I was 20. And Krishnadas was like 24, maybe. And my mother was so rattled. And of course, she wanted to feed us right away. And, oh, it's so hot. Have some lemonade, boys. So we sit down at the kitchen table. And she gets out from um, a used mayonnaise jar with no label on it, you know. Some, and she screws off the top and pours it out to us in two glasses. And it's cling peach juice mixed with water. Oh. <laughs> Not lemonade at all. <laughs> and we didn't even say anything. It was just like, in India, that would have been like the best thing we drank all week. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? It was like fruit cocktail, the syrupy juice in it mixed with water. After you ate the cocktail. The fruit cocktail or pe cling peaches the night before for dessert, family dinner. And we were like slurping it down like mango lassies, you know. Like, <laughs> and we never even said to my mother, yeah, have some more lemonade. Sure, boys. <laughs> That's what it was like. But like I said, it was a, the best thing we had drunk all week. Except maybe on the plane, we probably got like a real Coca-Cola instead of the Indian version, uh -huh. which had no Coca and no cola in it. <laughs> But it had the can. <laughs> if you've been in India, you know what I'm talking about. You've had chocolate in India? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. It's often important to uh, have some integration days at the end of a long retreat, like the three-month retreat in Barry, Massachusetts, Insight Meditation Society, pioneering meditation center in this country, mindfulness hub, they have, I think, a week or uh, three or four days of orientation, uh, integration, talking, and I don't know if it's going out to town, but talking and, you know, I don't know, phone calls maybe. The last week of the three-month retreat, so people don't get so, you know, shocked when they go home or get in the transport. I don't know, is it integration week or is it like three days? It's about a week, and it's part of the three-month retreat, right? It's the last week. So they even have some entertainment that week called People Like Me, you know, Buddhist teachers. So I used to do that every, for a few years. They asked me, I, I do one of the last days and come and, you know, teach and joke. And once I came with some slippers, you know, these funny slippers you can get that, like, have animal heads. This had, like, Bullwinkle's head and, and antlers sticking up to about my shins. And, of course, in the three-month retreat, like, nobody had put on shoes for three months, just flip-flops and, you know, bare feet and slippers. So, you know, I came in with my slippers into the meditation room, and it was in three months of sensory deprivation, there's not much to look at. So everybody noticed right away this big, you know, whatever. You know, me, Lama Suridas coming in with his antler, you know, like kind of scuba flippers, sandals. And, that, you know, so that's part of or integration week. Sounds fun. <laughs> Having different teachers, not just the straight one, but ones that teach the three month serious silent course. Joseph do Goldstein doesn't do that. Years? After three years, did you yeah. have it? Okay, that's it. Yeah, okay. I think that was after three years, or it might be after seven years. I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> I used to go there a lot. We had fun. Thank you. That was wonderful. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.